Let's go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 7 with me. So last week, we started the story of Stephen. I mentioned we would do that over the course of three different, um, I'll call them messages, I guess. But we will be um, taking some time off next week for Mother's Day um, in terms of the text. And um, so we'll then pick up with the last part of Stephen's story after that. But last week we saw Stephen confronted, arrested, and then falsely accused by a group of men referred to as the Synagogue of the Freedmen. Um, These were former slaves who secured their freedom, and they were primarily Hellenistic Jews, which means that they were heavily influenced by Greek culture and Greek thought. Luke uses phrases like, full of the spirit and wisdom, and full of grace and power, when he describes Stephen last week. And we saw this demonstrated when his accusers kind of rose up against him, they argued with him. And we found that um, as they challenged Stephen, Luke told us that they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. It was that concept of the spiritual wisdom confronting worldly wisdom. Spiritual wisdom always wins out. So as a result, they ended up fabricating charges against Stephen in much the same way that we saw them fabricate evidence against Jesus Christ The first couple of charges were that he was blaspheming Moses and God, two um, charges of high treason, if you will. And then the next two charges were that he spoke against the temple and the law. And so they fabricated these charges against him, they brought these false witnesses against him, and we saw how that all worked out last week. Well, I promised you that this week we would look at what many of your Bibles probably refer to as Stephen's defense. In reality, it's not much of a defense. In fact, I think it's better described as Stephen going on offense. And we're going to see why today, because he actually does little, if anything, to defend himself. He comes right out of the gate, building this case against his accusers, and he's ultimately going to demonstrate that they were the ones who were resisting God. Now he's going to do this by recounting Israel's history for them and then by calling out his accusers. So we're going to look at this in two parts today. We're going to look at what Stephen says as he recounts Israel's history and then we're going to look at how he uses that then to confront his accusers. And so let's look at the first part of that. Now what I find fascinating about this is I've read through Acts chapter 7 numerous times in my lifetime and I always looked at it And I looked at it simply as, I wonder what Stephen's doing here, because it looks like he's just simply, you know, rehearsing Israel's history. So you have this guy who's out preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. He gets confronted by these men who make all these false accusations against him. And you think the words coming out of his mouth then would be to defend himself. And what you get instead is he just talks about Israel's history. And I always thought that was puzzling. Could never make much sense out of it. And so I was not looking forward to having to teach this passage today because I was going to hand it over to Dustin and say, here, this is, this is yours. And most of it was because I'm looking and saying, what do you do with this when it's just history? It's just history. Until I really started getting into it. And little light bulbs go on. And you realize that what Stephen does here is he's using Israel's history to show how Israel has constantly resisted God's attempts at saving them. And we're going to see how that 
plays out here. And it's actually a pretty brilliant defense, if you will. So let's go ahead and look at this. I'm going to read, starting in verse 2, through verse 8 to start with. So chapter 7, starting in verse 2. I'll start with verse 1. The high priest said, Are these things so? In other words, are they true? And Stephen says, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haram. Haran. And he said, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move his or move to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, and yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land, and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years, and whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Remember, the question was, are these things true? But instead of saying yes or no... He says, let me tell you about our founding. Let me tell you about Abraham. Makes you wonder why he would start with that. I think there's two primary reasons. The first is that it's where it all began. Here he is preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's being confronted by these men. And in Peter's mind, I mean in Stephen's mind, the defense that he will give begins where the story for Israel begins. And that was with Abraham. I think a second reason why he starts with Abraham is because Abraham is going to become kind of the anchor of this, meaning he's going to be the standard. So he's going to, he establishes Abraham's faithfulness here, but then now every example he gives us through the rest of his history lesson is going to show a lack of faithfulness and a resistance. And so he starts with the patriarch Abraham. Abraham was called by God to leave, and what what do we know about Abraham? He did exactly that. In fact, we are told that Abraham was declared righteous by God because of his belief, his faith in God. And so he starts with this faithful example of Abraham, which all of the Jews at this point, all of his people in his hearing, these council members, the Sanhedrin, would have agreed. They would have understood the faithfulness of Abraham. So Israel's very existence is predicated upon God's promises and his covenant with Abraham. God called Abraham and moved him to a land which became Israel. God promised Abraham and his descendants that he would inherit the land or that they would inherit the land. God foretold that Abraham's descendants would first be aliens in a foreign land, that was Egypt, but that they would ultimately return to this land and they would serve him. And God entered into a covenant then with Abraham. And so this is where Stephen begins, because now he's dressed the table, if you will. This is what God promised us. This is where it all began. But then he sort of turns the tables, and he's now going to recount how the patriarch's resistance and how all of the leaders of Israel throughout history have resisted what God was doing with Abraham. And so the first group he's going to deal with here is Stephen recounts the patriarch's resistance when it came to Joseph. That's basically 
Abraham or um, um, Isaac's kids or Jacob's kids. Look at what what happens here. We're in verses uh, eight through sixteen or so. Almost immediately in Israel's history, we, history we see the first signs of resistance to God and His plans and purpose. You remember the story. Abraham is blessed by God and becomes a great grandfather to twelve. We call them patriarchs, the twelve tribes of Israel. Right. We're only three generations into Israel's history when we see this first act of resistance that Stephen's going to recount for us. Look at um, verse 8. We're going to look at verses 8 and 9 here. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. So think about this for just a moment here. If you remember the story of Joseph, it comes from Genesis chapter 37. A great famine was going to come upon the land and God was going to use or to rise up or raise up Joseph to save all of Abraham's family and all of Egypt. He revealed all of this to Joseph in a dream. And you remember when Joseph revealed those dreams to his brothers, what did they do? They resisted. They rebelled. They ultimately were filled with rage, it says. We're told here by Stephen, they became jealous. The patriarchs he's talking about here are all of Joseph's brothers. When they heard that God was going to raise up Joseph that they were going to ultimately serve the younger son, they became jealous. They became enraged. Remember what they did? They threw him into a pit, and then they ultimately sold him into Egypt. So what we actually have here is God raising up somebody to deliver them, to save them, but in their ignorance, they resisted and they rebelled. That's the first example that Stephen gives here. So right out of the gate... They resisted God's plan for deliverance. That's the first example he gives. Now, in spite of that, we see in verses 9 through 16 that God still fulfilled his purpose. Look at this, verses 9 through 16. They became jealous, they sold him into Egypt, yet God was with him, and he rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor with wisdom, or, and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all of Egypt and Canaan. And great affliction with it. And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob and his father and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. From there... They were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamar and Shechem. So what we basically see here is Stephen is laid out from the very beginning. When you first see God attempt to deliver at a difficult time in famine, we see all of Joseph's brothers, the patriarchs, the leaders, if you will, rebel and resist God's attempt to deliver them. But even so, God is still faithful, and that he still, in spite of that, delivers them. So the first example Stephen gives of their resistance is the story of Joseph. 
He's going to go on. He's going to now give us two more examples of resistance in Moses. So if you look at verses 17 through 40, let's look at the first one here. The first time they resisted Moses was actually done in ignorance. Look at verses 17 through 29. But at the time of the promise, as at the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until there arose a king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph, it was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants, means to kill them, and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power and words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defeated him and took vengeance, or defended him, and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brothers understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So now we have the second example. He's going to use Moses. And he talks about how Israel resisted another attempt for God to deliver them. He mentions they specifically did it in ignorance. So Moses was raised up by God in the time of Pharaoh, educated in the ways of Egypt, it says, and he became a powerful man in word and deeds. We know what God did with him. Meanwhile, his fellow Hebrews were being enslaved, severely mistreated. We know the story. According to Exodus chapter 2, one day when Moses was looking into the treatment of his fellow Hebrews, he came across an Egyptian who was beating another Hebrew, and so Moses defended him. And you notice what it says here in verse 25? And he, Moses, supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them what? Deliverance. Through him. But they didn't understand. So this is now a second attempt... That Stephen says, God has sent another deliverer. The first was Joseph. Now the second is Moses. And what do they do? Well, they resist. You have these examples of these two men here. Who gave you this right? And it says, Moses thought they would understand that God was delivering them. So they resisted. They pushed back. He rejected him, ultimately forcing him to flee to Midian. Now there's a second time where they resisted Moses. That's in verses 30 through 40. Let's go ahead and read that. This time they did it in direct disobedience. He says the first time he did it was in in ignorance. He didn't know God was sending Moses to deliver you. Now they just do it in outright disobedience. Look at verses 30 through 40. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of the burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. 
I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans and have come down to rescue them. There's that word again. Rescue, deliver. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer, there's that word again, with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation of the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but instead they repudiated him. In their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will be before us, for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. So much like God did with Joseph, in spite of their resistance to Moses the first time, God sent them Moses a second time now. And we see how that word deliverer or rescuer was repeated in this passage. But just like the first time when God sent someone to deliver them in Joseph, just like the second time when God sent someone to deliver them in Moses, they resisted. Here we find Moses led him out of Egypt. They witnessed angels speaking to him in the wilderness. He performed signs and wonders, not just in Egypt, but at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. And what's their response? It says they repudiated him. That means that they thrust him aside. They didn't just ignore him. They pushed him away. Much like they had thrown Moses, or I mean Joseph, into the pit. This time it says that they did it in disobedience. So we have Stephen establishing the fact that God did this amazing thing with Abraham and calling us. And we have this amazing example of obedience. But almost immediately after that, Israel's leaders began to resist every attempt that God made to rescue or deliver them. But he's not done yet. He then goes on and he recounts Israel's resistance to God himself. So they resisted Joseph, they resisted Moses once, they resisted Moses twice, and now he sort of says, they've just resisted God in general, and he's going to give some examples of that now in their history. The first way that he describes it is that they resisted him by worshipping idols. Look at verses 40 through 43. They said to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. And at that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to an idol and were rejoicing in the words of their hand, or works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. There's that word deliver again, and now it's used in a negative sense. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Ramfa, the images which you made to worship. I will also remove you from beyond Babylon. So the example he gives here is, you resisted God himself through your idol worship. After seeing all that God had done through Moses, you still resisted. So, it wasn't just rejecting Moses here, they were rejecting God 
himself. Notice it says they rejoiced over the work of their hands. That's outright rebellion. That's resistance to what God is doing. Stephen actually quotes from Amos where God used a rhetorical question to judge and condemn Israel's idolatry during the Exodus and wandering in the wilderness. That's the verses 42 and 43 there. And so they resisted God directly through their worship of idols. Stephen mentions a second example of directly resisting God and their idolizing of the temple. This is kind of an interesting one. Look at verses 44 through 50. You read those. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which had been seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what places is there for my, or what place is there for my um, repose? Was it not my hand high which made all these things? What's the point of this? Well, Stephen gives a second example of this idolatry by the way that they idolized the actual temple. He begins by recounting how God commanded that a tabernacle be made, a temporary dwelling place. Moses built that. It was a means of representing God's presence among Israel. It provided them a place to go for worship. He then speaks of how David wanted to build a permanent place, but the Lord wouldn't let him do it. Solomon finally built it. But even Solomon himself realized, this is not, this is not God. This is simply a place that he will temporarily dwell, if you will. It's a place where we can go to worship. Solomon himself said, Who's able to build him a house? Seeing the heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain him. But you notice that Stephen says something here. He says, However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. What's his point? He's quoting from Isaiah 66. Basically what Peter, or I'm sorry, what Stephen is trying to establish here is that There's this temple here that was made by human hands and you folks, just like Israel in the past, have worshipped the temple instead of the one in the temple. Remember what they had accused him of? He's blaspheming against what? The temple. He said bad things about the temple. There's something about the temple that's holy and perfect. And Stephen is saying, God didn't ask for a building, but... You wanted a building, so God let you build a building, but now you're idolizing that building. You're worshiping that building. That's why they are upset that he supposedly said something against the temple. That's blasphemy. That's as bad as saying something against God. Probably the most, probably the equivalent for us is when we say, oh, this is the church. Is this the church? This building isn't. It's us. God's church, his temple, is us. So when people idolize the building or the church or there's something sacred about this building, that's a form of idolatry. It really is. What's the movie? Badges? We don't need no stinking... Churches? We don't need no stinking church building. We really don't. God could see to it that this building is completely destroyed. It does not destroy the church. I was reminded of, was it Francis Chan or 
I don't, I don't think it was Francis Chan in this instance. It was another pastor out in California that they were getting ready to build another, I think, a $100 million building. And he kind of got to thinking. He's like, this is kind of crazy. He's like, we're out in California. We're 364 days of the year. It's sunny. It's rare on a Sunday morning to have rain. That was his thoughts. He's like, couldn't we just build a big amphitheater outdoors, save ourselves a ton of money, and we could just worship outside? So that's what they did. They didn't need the building. just needed a place to meet. Bring that many people together. I was watching, I think, a Little House on the Prairie episode not too long ago and kind of saw this played out in that where the church itself was this holy, almost relic of sorts. That's not the church. It becomes a, a form of idolatry. In fact, within the American church, I think we struggle with that to some degree. I had a conversation on Friday with somebody who called me. Somebody I knew from Grace years ago that hasn't been in church in a year. He's struggling. And um, part of it was the whole COVID thing. But we talked about how we do church here. And I kind of said, you know, we don't have all the big fancy programs. We're a real small body here at Renew. We don't have all the big programs. I said, part of the problem we have with attracting people is that we don't have all the programs. People come in. They want a youth program. They want this. They want that. They want their Starbucks coffee. That's the American church today. The bigger the program, the more attractive you are. That's why there's been an explosion of mega churches in the United States. They offer all the nice amenities. And many are attracted to the church for those things instead of the things they should be. That's a form of idolatry, folks. It really is. That doesn't mean we shouldn't enjoy some of those things, and I'm not trying to disparage all of that. I'm simply saying that we idolize the building and the programs and all those other things sometimes, instead of simply building what's necessary and needed to minister to the church family. We don't need a Starbucks in the lobby, folks. You can stop on the way in. But somehow, that becomes the thing, right? It's a form of idolatry. And so what, what Stephen is doing here is he's saying, you've idolized the temple. The last example he gives here um, really has to do with getting to the heart and soul of their resistance. Because that's exactly what idolatry is. It's a form of resistance. They're rejecting God and instead idolizing things. So as we look at this history lesson that he gives us, it's not just about history. He's not just, hey, this is cool. Let me tell you about Israel's history. What he's done is he's shown how Israel's history is one of constant rebellion and resistance against God's efforts to save and to deliver them. We've talked about, I think my daughter Katie mentioned this before. Dan, you always mention about repeated words in the text. They drive home a message. How many times have we seen in this text the idea of deliverance or rescue or deliverer? That's what Stephen's doing with this. Is he saying, your history is one of resistance. And why is that important? They resisted Joseph. They resisted Moses twice. They resisted God himself. They idolized the temple. Why did Peter, or why did, I keep saying Peter, why did Stephen do this? We'll see why in a second here. Verses 51 through 53, the smallest portion of our text today, Stephen now turns his attention to the council and he basically says, you guys are just like your forefathers. 
Their pattern of behavior is exactly what you are doing here and now with me and the other apostles. There's three primary charges that Stephen's going to level against his accusers. Look at verse 51. He says, You men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears and are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just what your forefathers did. So he's laid down this pattern and he now says, I'm talking about you. Talking about you guys. You are just like Israel in the past. He uses these two great word pictures here, and they're word pictures that come directly from the Old Testament. The first one is this idea of being stiff-necked. This portrays an unwillingness to yield or to submit to God's leading or to follow Him or even His attempts at rescuing or delivering them. It reminds me of that story. You've heard me share it before. You guys probably heard it. It's the old joke that basically talks about this man who's up on the rooftop of his house because the water is raging. There's a flood all, all, all outside. and So as the waters are rising, he climbs higher and higher in the house. He finally gets to the rooftop of the house. And he's crying out to God, save me, save me. And all of a sudden he notices there's a guy coming by the house in a little boat. And the guy says, hey, come on down, I'll save you. And he says, no, 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 God's going to rescue me and deliver me. So the guy continues on. A little while later he sees somebody come floating by on a log. Hey, jump on down, jump on. And he says, no, 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 God is going to save me. Next thing you know, the water's all the way up to the peak of that roof and he's still crying out to God to save him and a helicopter comes by with a rope ladder on it. And the guy's up there saying, grab the rope, grab the rope. He says, no, no, God will save me. Next thing he knows, he's standing at the pearly gates talking to Peter. I don't get this. I've been a Christian my whole life. God knows I was in desperate danger and I was crying out to him, save me, save me. And Peter says, what did you ask for? God sent you three different people to save you. That's kind of the picture. They're stiff-necked. They refuse to accept what God was doing. We, we had this dog growing up, and it kind of goes to this picture. You know, how does an animal behave when you're trying to, to lead and direct? You usually do it by the, by the collar, right, or by the neck. You know, you don't usually put a leash on the tail. Right? You lead it by the, by the head, by the neck, right? Wherever the head goes is where the animal's going to go. Well, we had this dog when I was growing up. Freddy was his name. We didn't name him, but that was his name. And my dad was, was great at this because Freddy was this dog who had been beaten and abused by his previous owner. And a lot of issues with it. So my dad just fell in love with this dog and wanted to care for it, so he wanted to train it. And um, so he would take Freddy out into our yard. We had no fence. But he's going to teach Freddy to stay in the yard. So he put a leash on it, and he would walk Freddy along the lot line, and he would stop, and he would just, no, no, no. You know, and he would walk a little bit more, and he would stop, and, and he would just walk the lot line. We don't know what he's doing. We had never trained a dog, you know. And so he would do that, just walk him along the lot line. After a little while, doing it without a leash, Freddy would walk along. Okay? We never had a problem with Freddy leaving the yard. Ever. In fact, he didn't like other dogs. And so there were times where he'd go, bark, 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 and he would go right up to the lot line and stop. He knew where that line was. Didn't need the electric fence, like you get now, you know, those invisible fences. Didn't need that. Well, I remember one particular time, it was an afternoon in the summer, I wanted to take Freddie out for a walk in the neighborhood. 
So I put the leash on Freddy, started walking on the driveway, Freddy's coming, and as soon as we got to the bottom of that driveway, he just stopped. Pushing back, you know. That dog was digging those nails in, trying to that concrete. He just was not, and I'm trying to drag the, he was not going to go outside that yard. But he would push back and pull that neck back. He was just that stiff-necked. And so the first example he gives, or the first way that he describes the rebellion, was, you're stiff-necked. God's trying to lead, and you're just stiffening that neck up and absolutely refusing to be led or to follow. The second example he gives is being uncircumcised in heart and ears. That's kind of portrays this idea of being calloused or hard-hearted. It's an unwillingness, again, to listen and obey. And that's probably the key. The first one is this refusing to follow. This one gets more at the idea of the heart and being unwilling to listen and to obey, to do the things that the Lord wants you to do. Now, both of these examples come right out of the Old Testament. They're used repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. On past generation, the fathers that Stephen is talking about here, Because Israel constantly resisted and rebelled against the Lord, and so he would always use these terms to describe them, calling them in the Old Testament a stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in their hearts and their ears. The implication Stephen actually is making here is that what was taking place in Jerusalem at this time, through the apostles and others like himself, that it was the work of the Holy Spirit. It was another attempt by God to rescue Israel. Jesus Christ had come, he had died, he had risen from the dead, the Jews had rejected him, and here God is one more time trying to rescue and deliver them by sending the apostles out as witnesses. And what's their response? Resistance. Stiff-necked, unwilling to listen, unwilling to obey, and he says, you're just like your fathers. You're resisting the work of the Holy Spirit just as they did. That's the first charge. The second charge that he makes against them is that they had become betrayers and murderers. Look at verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you now have become. Stephen refers to the persecution and the killing of God's prophets Israel had a history of doing this. We see some examples in the Old Testament. We also get examples from church history where certain church historians, Old Testament and New, had written about how these prophets were treated. And so when you combine the the, um, accounts we find in the scriptures with some of the mistreatment, and you combine that with what we know church history-wise and written by some of the Jewish scholars as well as Christian scholars over the, in the early part of the church, when you combine those examples, you get a better picture of exactly what, um, how they mistreated the, uh, the prophets. John MacArthur actually uh, preached a sermon a couple weeks back as it relate, and he made some comments at the very end of it regarding the United States. But he actually recounts this very thing here. This is what he says. 
regarding the prophets. They beat them, they wounded them, they mistreated them shamefully, they threw them out, they bashed their heads in, they killed them. According to Justin Martyr, church historian, Isaiah was sawn in half by his own people. Jeremiah was constantly mistreated and thrown into a pit. Tradition says that he was ultimately stoned to death. Ezekiel was mistreated. Tradition says that he was murdered by an Israelite he rebuked. Amos had to flee for his life. Zacharias, the priest, was rejected and stoned. Micaiah, the prophet, was punched in the face. This is how they treated the prophets. That's what Peter's referring to. Or, I'm sorry, Stephen's referring to. The implication Stephen is making here is that his accusers were guilty of the same thing. This council was guilty of the same thing that the Old Testament saints were in persecuting and killing and mistreating their own prophets. They were betraying the prophets because these prophets had announced the coming of the righteous one. And they basically, Stephen is saying, you're betrayers and murderers too, just like they are. Because they murdered the prophets who announced the coming of the righteous one. Who's doing that now? Here Stephen is before him announcing the coming of the righteous one. And what are they doing? They're getting ready to kill him. So they're guilty of the same thing. They had betrayed the prophets. They were guilty of murder, or will be soon, just like these others were. His third charge then, and this is the last one, is that they were lawbreakers. Remember they accused him of blaspheming the law? In essence, what he says now is, really? You accuse me of breaking the law? What about you? Look at verse 53. You who received the law as ordained by angels, yet you did not keep it. Well, these same people here that are getting ready to now stone him were the same ones who crucified Christ. They're guilty of law breaking the law. One of the big ten, if you will, murders kind of a bad thing. We see these same individuals privately planning to murder Jesus Christ. And now look at what they're doing with Stephen. In fact, we'll find out in two weeks. This becomes a mob. This is supposed to be the Supreme Court of the land. They're trying Stephen for things they believe he's accused of, and they themselves are bringing forward false witnesses that they're bribing and paying. It's a corrupt kangaroo court. And they don't even finish the process. Because they become so enraged that they now are totally out of control, and they drag them out of the city, and they stone them to death. They don't even issue a verdict totally out of control massive violation of the law which condemned murdering the killing of innocent people so here these leaders are claiming they hold the law in high regard Stephen replies to them in a fashion similar to Jesus because when Jesus was challenged in much the same way in John 7 he says did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? In other words, you claim to obey the law. But here you are now planning on killing me, an innocent man. And Stephen's doing the same thing here. 
lawbreakers. And so what we find as we look at this is this history lesson that Peter gives them um, isn't about history. He's laying down a pattern. God has attempted to save you over and over and over to accomplish his purpose and plan that he established in Abraham. And you have resisted and resisted and resisted to the point where you murdered the ones who promised the coming of the righteous one. And you're no different. You're doing the same thing now. So what's our takeaway from this? I'll point out two things here that stand out at least to me. The first is that what Stephen experienced, what he's going through right now, is no different than what men and women of God have faced throughout their history. It really isn't. It's not shocking. He's already demonstrated that. People like Joseph and Moses and the prophets all faced what Stephen's facing. Stephen's in their boat. We know the story of Peter and Paul. All of the apostles were martyred, with the exception of John, who tradition says was boiled in oil and then stuck on the island of Patmos. That's what they faced. That's not unusual, folks. We think about brothers and sisters all over the world who are facing constant persecution for simply preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many of them for simply believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stephen recounts Israel's history of resistance to God. He shows how God's attempts at saving them have been resisted over and over and over again. Jesus warned and prepared us, prepared us for this, didn't he? What do we see happening today right here? We've talked about this and I almost feel like a broken record. I almost feel like I'm delivering bad news every week. We have never seen the kind of resistance towards God's purpose and plan here in the United States. We've never seen it the way it is today. It's intensifying. We see people becoming bolder and bolder and bolder in their opposition to not just what we preach or believe, but to us. It's one thing to say, I don't like what you preach or teach. It's another to say, I don't like the fact that you even believe it. Which is what we kind of see today. I think, you know, try to avoid some of the conspiracy theory stuff, but you think about the, the COVID rules and why is it that in some places the rules were different for churches than they were for other things? That's not always the place. I mean, not always the way it was. But even in a place like California, where the governor of California basically said, well, yeah, you shouldn't be meeting in public. But to say, you can't even have a Bible study at your home with one other family. Why? He didn't say that you couldn't have another family over for dinner. You can't have them over for a Bible study. We've seen things like that through this pandemic where many have taken advantage and have treated the church differently. You know, I've seen um, calls recently. Um, in fact, who... Um, I don't remember if it was my daughter I was talking to or somebody. I was reading something recently about... Um, 
Kimberly, was it you that was telling me one of your classmates said something about oh, we shouldn't allow white people to vote? Um, that was a ransom of hers. Um, I've seen some similar things when it comes to Christians, how Christians shouldn't be able to do certain things because our beliefs when it comes to any number of social issues disqualify us simply because we believe those things. Resistance to God doing what God is doing has never been greater in the United States than it is today. We see that increasing. We see that worldwide. When you look at Open Doors and some other organizations that track Christian persecution, all the data points to the fact that it is intensifying all over the world. Now, God's church in many respects the under- is growing in places, but persecution and hatred against his people is exploding Last year alone, I think they said the, increase, the number of deaths or martyrdoms in the, in the world went up another 6 or 7% in one year. It's the greatest it's ever gone up in a single year that they've been tracking this kind of stuff. I looked at some numbers recently where there's been an increase of almost 30% in the last decade of instances of death, martyrdom, in the world. Just in the last decade. People resist what God is doing. That's the history. And so one of the takeaways for us, I think, as we look at this, is we have to realize, folks, that it isn't going to get better. Resistance to God and his attempts to save his creation will get stronger and stronger and stronger. I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but that's the reality. What's another takeaway we can get from this? I look at Stephen here, and I think, in spite of this, he did not appear to get discouraged or fearful when he was confronted by his accusers, but rather he courageously and boldly proclaimed the truth, even calling out his accusers. There's a lot of angst and fear among Christians today. Some leaders and Churches have foolishly compromised their message or their convictions, thinking that they can somehow assuage the hatred or appease their accusers. Well, maybe we should just stop talking about certain issues. Or maybe we should just stop doing certain things. Or maybe we should just focus on love and not sin. Maybe by doing those things, they'll learn to love us or appreciate us and they'll accept our message. Stephen didn't do that, did he? Stephen is accused of a handful of things here. And instead of saying, oh, I'm sorry, maybe I shouldn't say some of these things. Instead, he gives them a history lesson on how they had always resisted and always rebelled, and he talked to them about sin. Why? Because he had to. That's what they needed to hear. So he allows himself to be filled with the Spirit. He allows himself to be emboldened with grace, with wisdom, with power. The other thing that stands out about this to me is um, he didn't just simply try to reason with them. What did he do? You notice what his weapon was here, what his tool was that he used to confront his accusers? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Can this be our quiz for this morning? What was his tool? What did he rely on to make his argument? Where did he get his information? The Word of God. It's exactly what he did. 
This is what the Word said. That's our weapon. That's what we have to rely on. So when we look at the world that we're living in today and we see the opposition growing against us, while many are trying to assuage what's happening and maybe not speak so boldly, only speak about the love of God, Stephen took an opposite approach. Let me tell you what the Word says. This is what the Word says. Now, they didn't like it. They ended up stoning him to death. That might be the response. But we've also seen throughout this that as they've preached, many have come to Christ, and we're going to see that continuing throughout the, God, throughout the book of Acts. That's the good news. And so I think a second takeaway for us here is that, like Stephen, we need to be, we need to be emboldened. We can't shrink back. I was reading an article this last week about, um, I believe it was in the UK, a pastor who was just arrested for simply teaching on marriage from a biblical perspective in his church. And was arrested. I think they said he now may face as much as two years in prison. Simply for preaching in his own church. He was preaching in portions of Genesis. And as he got to Genesis chapter 2, he mentioned marriage being between a man and a woman as the book of Genesis describes. Some didn't like it. He was arrested, charged. May spend a couple of years in prison. We don't know yet. That's in the UK. That was in North Korea. We see that happening in Canada where it's basically illegal to preach on the evils of homosexuality. But instead of shrinking back, we need to basically say, this is what the word says. And not be afraid to preach that. Amen? Scary thought. I know that. But Peter didn't shrink, or I'm sorry, Stephen didn't shrink back. I think we, we need that today because I think it's going to get worse. Maybe not rapidly, maybe at a slow pace, maybe at a fast pace. We don't know. But we have to remember something that Stephen, I think, remembered. God was still attempting to save Israel. After all that resistance, after all that pushback, after a history of that, God was still trying to save Israel. John MacArthur's message that he preached, um, I think it was called, Too Late for Grace When a Nation Rejects God. Preached that back in March. It was a statement he made at the very end. He basically says, the United States is already being judged by God. It's too late for the United States. Meaning, God's judgment has already begun. He might be be right in that. But, does that mean God is not still trying to save people in the United States? No, he still is. He is still trying to save in spite of what we see right now in the pushback and the resistance and the stiff neck as people in our own culture and society, our neighbors, our friends, our family, our workplaces, as they stiffen up their neck and as they start to push back, God is still trying to save them. Which is why Stephen needed to still preach. It's why we still need to say the things that need to be said.